Although our first speaker today did not coin the phrase, the Americans are coming, it is still fitting that he be our first speaker for this 1977 Rocky Mountain Rally. It does give me great pleasure to introduce this nationally known author and lecturer, radio program producer, John Burt Society Youth Camp Song and Dance Man, the eminent Mr. Alan Stang, speaking on The Americans Are Coming. of this entire affair, as you know, has entitled my talk, The Americans Are Coming. When I first wrote that line in American Opinion a few years ago, and I, until Jerry uh, said what he said a moment ago, by the way, I thought that I was the one who uh, wrote it first. Uh, when I wrote that line uh, in an article called Our Morale, I had no idea it would stick the way it has. Since then, of course, the American Party has used it as a slogan, and of course, so do we in the John Birch Society. But it occurs to me that many Americans, and maybe even some of you, are wondering whether the slogan, the Americans are coming, is just a slogan and nothing more. Are we just whistling past the graveyard? Are we really accomplishing anything? If the Americans really are coming, why doesn't John Chancellor of the CFR say so? Why doesn't Walter Cronkite of the Chase Manhattan Bank tell us? Well, friends, you already know the answer. John Schmidt is fond of reminding us that the ancient Chinese author Sun Tzu had the answer 25 centuries ago. Sun Tzu wrote that supreme excellence in war does not consist of defeating your enemy in battle. It consists of defeating your enemy before going to battle. And friends, that's exactly what the prostitute national press is trying to do to you. The powers that be are trying to destroy your morale. They know that a small army with superior morale can defeat a much larger army with inferior morale. So the millionaire totalitarian socialist conspirator to rule us are trying to discourage you, trying to persuade you to believe that you can't win trying to defeat you before going to battle. They know that if they can persuade you to believe that you can't win, then you can't. That's why Karl Marx, one of the biggest frauds known to history, thought that the junk known as communism is inevitable. The sleazy crook was trying to kill your will to resist. But friends, they know you're out here. Last summer at the Republican convention, Mike Wallace, my old boss, told me that people ask him about me. That's right, friends. People ask me about you, he said. They know you're out here. Of course, the people Mike was talking about aren't really people. They're CBS brass. And apparently they are worried enough to inquire about the fact that you have put my program on 100 radio stations around the country. I told Mike that people asked me about him. He asked what I told them. I said I told them that Mike Wallace is a guy who will say whatever he has to say in order to earn six figures a year. And Mike didn't protest too much. Yes, friends, they know you're out here. The Americans are coming. That's a slogan, but it isn't just a slogan. It's happening. Our socialist rulers are making more progress than ever. But at the same time, I'm more encouraged right now than I've ever been since I got into this freedom movement 14 years ago. I'm more encouraged than ever that we can win, that we are already winning, that the tide is turning. In fact, I believe more than ever that if the present members of the John Birch Society fully understood that and came out of the trenches like the winners that they are, the enemy would collapse in amazingly short order. That's what we're here to take a look at this afternoon. In the talks that follow, of course, my colleagues will fill you in on various aspects of the battle. But right now, let's kick off the rally with just a few of the reasons I believe more firmly than ever as I do. And permit me to begin by playing an unusual tape about five minutes long. As you know, Robert Welch has told us from the year one, 1958, that all it will take to win this battle for America is sufficient understanding. All we have to do is to expose the conspiracy enough. But many people disagree. Many fine Americans either ridicule or just don't understand our firm assertion that exposure is the thing the conspiracy fears most. So let's go now to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. A few weeks ago, I was a guest on Channel 4 on a program called AM Pittsburgh, which is seen throughout Western Pennsylvania. The host of the show is a dude named Lynn Hines. And the guest who preceded me to the microphone on this segment of the show was a gentleman named Frank Wilkinson. As Birchers, you are of course familiar with Frank Wilkinson. Wilkinson has been a top Communist Party official for years. He ran the security apparatus for the Communist Party in Los Angeles. He served time in the penitentiary for contempt of Congress for refusing to testify about his communist activities. Wilkinson, more than any other man, gets the share, the major share of the discredit for the abolition of the House Committee on Un-American Activities. 
And these are only a few examples from his record. Yet this top communist was characteristically posing as a liberal. In fact, he had been brought into Pittsburgh to make a speech by an outfit called Americans for Democratic Action, which poses as a so-called liberal organization. So there we are, the two of us, on AM Pittsburgh. Before we went on the air in the adjoining studio, Mr. Wilkinson began pumping me. He wanted to find out what I would say. He told me that we had a lot in common. He told me he came from a conservative Republican background. <laughs> Believe it or not, he told me he had addressed Birch meetings in Los Angeles. Frank Wilkinson. I said to him, I said, oh, you mean the chapters invited you to address them? He said, well, no, it wasn't quite like that. He said the ch members were there when I spoke. What he meant, of course, is they found out he was there and uh, went to the meetings to expose him. He, he said, get this, he said that in his youth, he had been associated with the Women's Christian Temperance Union. He said he hoped we could work together and gave me his card. He said that he had made a speech the previous evening in a church. In fact, I wouldn't have been at all surprised, not at all, if he had leaned over to me, put his hand on my arm and said, Mr. Stang, are you willing to accept Christ as your personal savior? <laughs> then he went on the air with Lynn Hines to discuss the First Amendment. Frank Wilkinson, the communist, said he was for it. So was Lynn Hines. As part of his alleged defense of the First Amendment, Wilkinson, the communist, advocated what would amount to the destruction of the FBI. Larry McDonald probably will discuss this this evening, which is just about the only government agency left in America that is still allowed to investigate communists. Since Wilkinson is one of them, he naturally advocated that the FBI be forbidden to investigate subversion. And remember that he was doing this in the guise of a moderate liberal. At no time did Lynn Hines tell the people who he really is. Enter your intrepid correspondent. On the air, as you will hear, I told the people of Western Pennsylvania the truth about Frank Wilkinson. The result was that Lynn Hines, the so-called newsman, lost control of himself. His face collapsed. On television, this is. His lower lip bounced like a yo-yo. And communist Wilkinson howled like a cat with its tail caught in the ringer. Lynn Hines, who just a moment before had been in favor of the First Amendment, now was against it. Indeed, with Wilkinson's approval, Hines literally grabbed for my microphone, but his hands were shaking so badly I was able to get the word out. So here, ladies and gentlemen, are just a few minutes of the audio portion of that television slugfest. This is kind of an unusual thing to do, but I thought maybe you'd get a kick out of it. So Blair Painter has told me how to do it. Let me uh, just play a few minutes of this. I think you'd get a lot of agreement on that. How did you have in mind that one? Well, they're rubbing us in so many ways, it's difficult to know where to begin. But one of the many ways they are rubbing us, which we have been pointing out to our fellow Americans for so many years, as you may know, is that they are rubbing us through the social security system. Now, for years, we have been warning patiently, as I'm sure you will recall, that the social security system is a monumental fraud and is bankrupt. And lately, uh, that fact has been becoming so obvious that even the leaders of social security themselves admit that it is totally bankrupt. They are now saying what we in the John Birch Society have been vilified and uh, ridiculed for saying for, for so many years. And now, uh, there just was a headline on the front page of one of your state papers just a few days ago, uh, the Allentown Chronicle, the lead story of the day on May 27th, uh, said that the Carter administration is actually planning, considering, to impose income taxes on Social Security benefits. They figure that our retired people are living too high on the hog. With, with the few dollars that they get now, they want to take income taxes out of the Social Security benefits. All, of course, in a desperate attempt by the politicians to prevent the Social Security system from collapsing, as it has to collapse, because they've stolen every penny out of it. There's no money in there. If a private insurance company had done, uh, in a private policy system, what Social Security is doing, the administrators of that company would be sent to the penitentiary for 20 years. That's just one example. When you say they have stolen from, you don't mean surely they have stolen money and put it in their pocket. What they've done is stolen the money and spent it to aggrandize themselves, to give themselves more power, which is what you find so many totalitarian power busters in Washington there to get. And because they have stolen, literally stolen the money out of these reserves, the reserves no longer exist. Once again, this is, this is one of the things we've been warning about patiently for so many years, and now you see it's beginning to hit the front pages of the daily newspapers. Now, this is one of the things that I'm in your neck of the woods folks to talk about. I'm going to be giving a speech tomorrow evening at Norwin High School in Irwin, Pennsylvania, on Route 30 at 8 o'clock. Admission is free. 
For more information about my talk this evening, in which I'm going to be covering Social Security and so many of the other ways they are rubbing you, you can call 231-2011. That's 231-2011. Okay, let me ask both of you a question. I, I suppose that there are lots of people watching who agree that the government's meddling too much, keeping too much secret, that they're, they're dipping around with money and, and they're after power, and that the government really needs to be reformed in this country. Will it ever happen, and how will it ever happen? I ask that because we just had an election in Pittsburgh not too long ago, which was an important election, and fewer than 50% of the people bothered to vote. And do people really care? I think a reason for uh, so much apathy on the part of the voters is, first of all, uh, that they perceive that both of the political parties are controlled uh, by the same type of people mm -hmm. who present the same totalitarian collectivist-type policy. You have the Ford administration, then you have the Carter administration. Basically, it's the same policy. And the reason for that the reason that, that uh, the people are, are mystified and upset about this is that they don't know the facts. For example, one of the facts that they don't know, and which apparently you are unaware of, is that Mr. Wilkinson is a member of the Communist Party, and has been a member of the Communist Party for years, and as a matter of fact, ran the uh, Communist Party security apparatus in Los Angeles. Uh, wait and, just uh, a Mr. minute. Wilkinson wait just a minute here. That they also didn't know that Mr. Wilkinson was you, sent to the federal, federal, federal penitentiary for a year because you refused wait. to deny before a committee of Congress that he was a member of the Congress. Listen party. to this man. He comes in here. This seems to be one of the things that you should have told the American people that they deserve to know about who you're Will you wait a minute now? You know, he comes on here talking first about Ford and Carter being totalitarian representatives some sort of a paranoia, I'm thinking you're going a little farther, and then he tries to put a label like this upon me, Are you which apparently he's funny. You, you listen to me now. Are you the friend? You listen to me now, and don't interrupt me, or you're going to get in trouble, and you'll be sued, you see, for libel. I'll take your papers now, Mr. All right, we'll, 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 to abolish the House Committee on Un-American Activities. Uh, Mr. Moorhead and many of your representatives right here in Pittsburgh joined on this campaign. Father Drynan was the leader of it. We had 40 Republican totalitarians on that record. But I was listening carefully to what he's saying here about Social Security. They know, and this jumps from here to there. It, it alarms me a little bit. But I've been listening member of the socially. Listen, I don't answer that kind of business from you. You mean you won't deny being a member? Listen, of the we're talking about what you started in this. Tell what you're talking that you you're aren't talking, a member. Listen, you're not going to do this in this forum here. Well, you want to talk I'm to going me. to do it, and I'm doing it. Well, right you're, you're not being listened to by anyone. You're First talking of all, to I want to know security. why Americans for Democratic Action, which poses as a moderate liberal organization, brings a top-level executive the member of the Communist Party into Pittsburgh. According to the, the John Birch Society, uh, most of us, half of America is a member of the Communist That's Party. That's a lie. Where do you get, Where do you get uh, that? Where do you get that? For people like you, come on, make right. a nice statements like that. Listen, buddy, listen, buddy I came on and said that Mr. Wilkinson That's is right. a member of the Communist Party. That's, That's right. all. That's right. That's all I said. Every time a John Birch is a member of the Communist Party, they come on making charges like that. It's not what you were invited on to talk about. It certainly was not what you told us you were going to say. You have misrepresented your right anything. And as I far as I'm concerned, let's take your microphone off. And that's what I say. Listen, listen, listen just I have to go to commercial. Just keep your hands up, everybody. Thank you, folks. Jewish, we call that chutzpah. <laughs> I hope you got a kick out of it. I, I thought you might. Anyway, there, friends, you have a, a day in the life of the prostitute national press. And it proves how much fun birching really is. <laughs> now you know why we say that if you aren't having fun, you aren't really birching. And remember that the most incredible aspect of that television program is the one that makes birching so much fun. Nowhere did so-called newsman Lynn Hines even consider the question of whether or not what I said was true. That question didn't exist. Notice that he and Wilkinson never claimed that what I said was a lie. They lost control of themselves only because I dared to say it. And friends, that's where you come in. What you just heard is the dynamite proof that the most effective thing you can do to stop the conspiracy is simply to expose it. And my colleagues and I will keep doing that as long as you are behind us. So...
So now let's take a look at what our education action program is accomplishing. And let's stay in Western Pennsylvania for a start. Recently, the conspirators tried to bring land control to the area. Land control is, of course, closely related to the ecology movement, which says that the government should have control of the land in order to protect it. For instance, the ecologists claim to be worried about something called the furbish lousewort. What's the furbish lousewort? It's a weed. And according to the dictionary, this, this weed, the furbish lousewort, is so named because it was believed to give lice to the cattle that ate it. The Smithsonian Institution declared it extinct in 1943, and we have all lived quite happily without this pest ever since. But last year, as you know, the government conveniently found a couple of hundred lousewarts, and believe it or not, is using them as the reason to stop construction on the billion-dollar Dickey Lincoln hydroelectric project in Maine. The powers that be expect us to believe that this crummy pest is more important than people. There is also the totally unimportant snail darter, a three-inch fish that apparently darts after snails. That's why they call it the snail darter. You get it? You're a good group. Which is being used as the excuse to prevent completion of the $116 million teleco dam in Tennessee. In American Opinion magazine, the great Dr. Susan Huck brilliantly parodies what is happening as follows. Quote, Recent headlines have boasted that mankind may eliminate the scourge of smallpox very soon indeed. The only known cases are confined, we are told, to a few villages in Ethiopia. That is to say, the smallpox virus is an endangered species. It could become extinct. But not if we act swiftly. Contributions are being accepted now to enable militant environmentalists to reach Ethiopia in time to contract smallpox and save the virus from irrevocable destruction, end quote. Those interested, please form a line against that wall after the session. And so land control came to Western Pennsylvania. They told the people that a so-called input meeting would be held the first week of March. An input meeting, as you probably know, is one in which the people are permitted to blow off steam to create the spurious impression that they are making a decision when in fact the government has made the decision in advance. But on February 15th at 6.30 p.m., one of our chapter leaders discovered that the so-called public meeting was scheduled to take place secretly only half an hour later. It's interesting to note that the state had allocated $3,000 of state money to publicize these meetings, but the state didn't place any ads. When the meeting convened at 7 o'clock, nine local birchers were there. They found six politicians. That's right, friends. Six politicians were there to provide the so-called local input. But because our members outnumbered them, the meeting was adjourned until March 8th. In the interim, our members put ads in local papers, printed and distributed a thousand copies of Sue Huck's article called Land Grab, and got the signatures of almost 20% of the county's population on a petition. By March 8th, our leaders were exhausted, but the hard work paid off. First of all, since the purpose of the meeting was supposed to be to get the people's feedback, our chapter leader's husband became the chairman. The courthouse seats 350, but 500 people were jammed inside. Outside were 1,500 more who couldn't get in, among whom were some people with a bucket of tar and some feathers. <laughs> Friends, the only reason the government people were not tarred and feathered was that the folks who were there to do the job couldn't get into the building. Now, of course, it's important to note that the John Birch Society actively discourages tar and feathers for politicians. As you know, we're moderate. We're moderate to the point of fanaticism. And until the John Birch Society went to work, the people had no idea what was going on. It was the society alone that brought almost 2,000 people to the courthouse. Here's how the local Courier Express described what happened. Quote, the people, enraged by literature passed out by groups before the meeting, had the opportunity at a public hearing being conducted here to provide input into a state plan for future land use. However, almost all the people chose not to provide any input into the state plan, but instead used the meeting as a forum to condemn the state and the governor's attempts at planning. The meeting seemed to center around a 35-minute presentation by the John Birch Society, which produced 6,200 signatures on a petition that was signed by people in Elk and Jefferson counties. During the presentation by the John Birch Society chapter, the group somehow managed to compare the possible land use proposals with the Communist Manifesto. Shocking. When the group finished, they received resounding applause, as did all the other speakers who condemned possible state plans, end quote. 
Because so many people couldn't get into the courthouse, the state representative promised that he would hold another meeting at which they could express their views. But it never came off. Maybe somebody told him about those folks with the tar and feathers. <laughs> For three weeks, our chapter leader's husband called Harrisburg, the state capital, to ask when the next meeting would be held. But whenever he called, whoever he called was out to lunch. They eat a lot of lunch in Harrisburg. So the Birchers scheduled the meeting themselves, and on March 25th, sent the state a registered letter about it. A thousand people showed up to tell the state what they thought, but not one state official appeared. Indeed, the results of all this at last word are that all state land use meetings have been canceled. After the incident, several members of the state planning board resigned. No land use officials have been seen in the area since. The society has won more respectability as the organization that brought land control to the attention of the people. We are being invited to different groups to explain land use and the society. Even local zoning is running into trouble. Our section leader reports that recruitment is booming. The spirits of our older members are soaring. Our section leader tells us this, quote, by attending these meetings and getting involved, the citizens see firsthand the deceit of our politicians and bureaucrats. Any elected official who votes for this land use legislation will also be signing his retirement papers, end quote. So you see, friends, it's really happening. It's happening now. This is no idle boast. The Americans are coming. And remember that this is just one of many examples. For instance, now let's take a look at the Great National Rifle Association. As you know, it has about a million members and has always stood for the defense of our vital Second Amendment. But incredible to relate, the enemy recently took the NRA over. Robert O. Anderson suddenly appeared in a position of great influence. Anderson is, of course, the chairman of Atlantic Richfield, is a close friend of David Rockefeller's, and is the chairman of the Aspen Institute of Humanistic Studies right here in Colorado, which is trying to destroy the United States. One of our members called NRA headquarters in Washington to complain and was told, quote, what's wrong with world government, end quote. In an incident reminiscent of Richard Nixon's famous Saturday Night Massacre, the NRA leadership fired 74 good guys. The powers that were tried to pull articles from the American riflemen, articles exposing the anti-gun activities of such outfits as the National Education Association and Smith & Wesson. The basic purpose of NRA was to be changed from a shooting organization to just another ecology front. The revolutionary plan called for selling NRA headquarters in Washington where they are so badly needed. NRA was to move to Colorado, to Denver, and then to New Mexico, in the course of which millions of dollars of member money would be wasted. NRA leaders planned to go to the big foundations such as Rockefeller and Ford for additional funds, which of course would have meant that the subversives who run those tax-exempt monstrosities would have owned the NRA. The millionaire totalitarian socialist conspirators who rule us would have been within striking distance of their goal of the confiscation of our guns. Maybe this was what Jimmy Carter's chief fundraiser, Morris Deese, meant when he boasted a while back that he would destroy the National Rifle Association within five years. Enter a gentleman who is familiar to you all, the Honorable R.D. Patrick Mad Dog Mahoney. <laughs> there are some, of course, who say that he drinks quite heavily, but none will deny that the immortal sergeant has his stuff together. Working with gun leaders Jim, Gene Crum and Neil Knox, Pat Mahoney put the facts together in an article in the Review of the News published by us entitled The NRA Backfire. The article was reprinted and distributed widely. Some of you may remember that I did a full week of commentaries based on it on my radio show across the country. So at the recent NRA convention in Cincinnati, the members came loaded for bear. They covered every door. They had floor leaders, each of whom were, wore an orange hat. They had yes and no signs in order to vote as a block. They had nine walkie-talkies. Yes, that's right, friends. Our side can also play at that game. The meeting began at 7.40 p.m. Neil Knox asked the offending officers to resign. They refused, so the members went to work. The meeting included the dramatic playing of a tape, which proved that a top NRA officer had indeed tried to seize control of the vital institute for legislative action as charged. The meeting also included the sickening spectacle of California State Senator H.L. Bill Richardson, an NRA board member, fighting to defeat the good guys. Permit your reporter respectfully to suggest that Bill rewrite his book and entitled it Slightly to the Left. When the meeting ended at 3.25 the next morning, the NRA members had voted to change the Certificate of Incorporation 
so as to eliminate the welfare clause, which the revolutionaries were using to change NRA into an environmental group. They abolished the management committee and threw out the officers. It was a Saturday, Saturday night massacre and then some. They stopped all money to Raton. They stopped the move to Denver. They stopped the sale of the headquarters in Washington. They elected good guy Harlan Carter executive vice president. It was a smashing victory, and once again the people who won it, the NRA members, were able to do so only because various groups, prominent among which was the John Birch Society, had told them what was really going on. Now let's take another look at OSHA, and once again, remember, in this quick session, we're just taking a look at a few quick examples. OSHA is, of course, the Occupational Safety and Health Act, and it is a neo-fascist scheme concocted by our millionaire totalitarian socialist rulers who have been using it to give the government total control of our economy. OSHA started off like the work of a bunch of imbeciles and quickly descended into total idiocy. <laughs> Among... I may not be as funny as Jackie Mason, but I'd like to see what he could do with my material. <laughs> Among its inspectors have been people who inspected various equipment without knowing what it was, and then gave advice about it to the men who have been running the equipment for 20 years. In many cases, OSHA regulations have made it impossible for businessmen to use their equipment. And just recently, OSHA came forth with still another masterpiece entitled Safety with Beef Cattle. A year ago, in Safety with Beef Cattle, OSHA warned farmers and ranchers as follows, quote, be careful that you do not fall into the manure pits, end quote. <laughs> yes, that's right. That was OSHA's official position. And there's no denying it's good advice. <laughs> so gentlemen, effective immediately, you will stay out of the manure pits. You will stay out now! OSHA isn't opposed to manure, you understand. Its very existence is more than enough proof of that. I'm afraid that's about as far as I can go on that one, gentlemen. There are ladies, ladies in the room. It just doesn't want you to fall into any. And apparently it believes that you farmers and ranchers are so dumb that you don't have enough sense to stay out. When the John Birch Society got into this mess, as you may remember, OSHA was terrorizing businessmen across the country. Some of them were going out of business because they couldn't afford to pay the fines and make the expensive changes OSHA often required. So the society organized a nationwide network of local committees called Nixon OSHA committees. My colleagues and I addressed them across the country. The committees distributed millions of our reprints, which told businessmen what it really was. Week after week on my radio news commentary, I told them that under our Constitution, they had the guaranteed right to demand a valid search warrant from OSHA before permitting an inspection. And the businessmen began to do just that, with the result that a string of recent court decisions has put OSHA on the ropes. In the recent Barlow ruling up in Idaho, a special three-judge federal court said this, quote, we therefore hold that the inspection provisions of OSHA, which have attempted to authorize warrantless inspections of those business establishments covered by the Act, are unconstitutional as being violations of the Fourth Amendment, end quote. Indeed, did you know that the OSHA inspector who originally tried to inspect the Barlow premises, Mr. Daniel T. Sanger, has recently become an OSHA critic? That's right. He has attacked OSHA's statistics as unreliable. Mr. Sanger, unfortunately, hasn't been feeling well lately. If I remember correctly, he tripped over a cord in OSHA headquarters and hurt his knee. <laughs> Which no doubt proves that the OSHAcrats are also human. But if a similar incident were to happen to one of your employees on your premises, you would probably be fined. Recently, in Salt Lake City, a district court ruled that the entire Utah OSHA law is unconstitutional. The Supreme Court in Washington will, of course, make the final decision. But as it stands now, OSHA is through. You don't have to let the OSHAcrats pass your reception room. And remember that this victory became possible only after we gave the people the facts. So once again, friends, it's happening. It's happening right now. We are winning victory after victory. Now let's take another, a look at another quick example. Now let's take a look at Laetrile. During the three days of this rally, more than 3,000 Americans will die of cancer. Most of those victims presumably have enjoyed the dubious benefits of orthodox therapy. An example of how dubious those benefits are is the fact that establishment medicine recently warned doctors 
to stop giving mammography to low-risk women between 35 and 49 years old. What is mammography? Mammography is the use of x-rays to detect breast cancer in women. So why does orthodox medicine now want to stop using it? Orthodox medicine now wants to stop using it for fear that the mammography itself may be causing cancer. But remember that when a woman does have breast cancer, one of the orthodox therapies open to her is radiation, which boils down to mean that establishment medicine is afraid of mammography because its radiation may cause cancer. But when a woman does have cancer, she is treated with radiation. Indeed, wasn't it the radiation produced by the atomic bombs in 1945 that triggered cancer in so many Japanese? Why then is cancer treated with radiation? All of which makes it safe to say conservatively that establishment medicine isn't entirely positive what cancer really is and how to cure it. Enter Laetrile. Laetrile is a vitamin, also known as B17, which in the opinion of a growing minority of doctors helps to control cancer. The John Birch Society, of course, takes no position on whether cancer patients should take Laetrile or not. We couldn't take a position. We're not doctors and therefore we give no medical advice. Our position is simply that patients and doctors have as much right to use Laetrile, if that's what they want, as they do to use surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy, if that's what they want. In short, as usual, we're in favor of freedom of choice. But as you know, the powers that be don't see it that way. They are determined that you will be treated their way whether you like it or not. So they've been raiding health food dealers and stealing apricot kernels. The next logical step would be to ban apricots and then apples and peaches. Indeed, will the Food and Drug Administration finally decide to ban food? <laughs> Just last night it was, I was riding with the maximum regional leader, the Honorable Donald H. Kennedy. He told me about an incident, I think it took place in uh, Phoenix, maybe it was Salt Lake City, I kind of think it was Phoenix. It, it was Salt Lake City, okay. And uh, the Honorable Kennedy uh, told me about uh, a doctor in uh, Salt Lake who related to him just recently it was, that an FDA inspector, Food and Drug Administration inspector, went to a medical laboratory to inspect the laboratory. And the word antibody came up. The inspector said, what's an antibody? Here's an FDA inspector who's going to inspect doctors in a medical laboratory. He doesn't know what an antibody is. An antibody is, of course, something that is good for your body, so it definitely is not the FDA. <laughs> As usual, the powers that be are denouncing their favorite whipping boy, the John Birch Society. But friends, in my opinion, they have made a big mistake. They're still living in 1961. Apparently, they thought that if they simply associated Laetrile with the society, people would throw out their apricots and break down the doors for 5-fluorouracil. But it isn't working out that way. The John Birch Society is bringing the issue of freedom of choice home to the enemy. And the people are giving us the credit. We're winning. Laetrile is being legalized in state after state, and it's now too late for the millionaire socialist conspirators who rule us to claim that we had nothing to do with it. Here's the front page of last Sunday's Boston Herald American. This is just last Sunday's headline. The headline says, Birchers spur drive to legalize Laetrile. The story says this, quote, cancer victims and their families, grateful for often the only sympathetic and resourceful sources of information on the drug, swallow large doses of right-wing propaganda. Sometimes knowingly, but often without recognizing it. Once written off as an inconsequential fringe group, the Birch Society now is exerting strong political pressure. It is being felt on Beacon Hill, where lawmakers who would ordinarily have nothing to do with the John Birch Society now find themselves working with acknowledged birchers toward passage of pro-laetral pro legislation, end quote. <laughs> remember, friends, remember that this is happening in the capital of the People's Republic of Massachusetts. <laughs> this, of course, this, of course, proves that we're still living in the age of miracles. Remember, by the way, that I was the first journalist to reveal that the state of Massachusetts is a communist front. <laughs> the article also quotes Paul Sage, an official of the Food and Drug Administration, who says this, quote, We're getting licked. We're getting clobbered. They're experts at operating on the grassroots level. They're a formidable political force, end quote. That's you he's talking about, friends. The article... 
The article says this about an unnamed doctor, quote, although he is not a member of the JBS, the doctor said his interest in Laetrile has made him aware that many positions taken by the Birch Society are right, end quote. And here's what it says about an unnamed patient, quote, two years ago, his only complaint about the government was taxes taken out of his paycheck. Now the 58-year-old former telephone company worker tells anyone who will listen how the American Medical Association and the government are so afraid of losing billions of dollars that they keep Laetrile from the public. The change occurred 18 months ago when doctors told him he had cancer of the spleen and colon. He had heard of Laetrile through friends, but I wanted no part of it. I figured the doctors knew what they were doing, he said. After six months of chemotherapy, during which time he developed open sores and lost his hair, he bought apricot pits at a local health food store. He also bought Griffin's book, World Without Cancer. What they said about the conspiracy started to make sense. Since I've been on Laetrile, I've never felt better, end quote. Once again, once again, ladies and gentlemen, these are just a few quick examples. Another striking example, by the way, is that recently the, the column, the newspaper column, the weekly newspaper column written by Jack McManus, the Birch Log, we call it, as you know, it's one of the uh, products of John Birch Society features. Jack's column has appeared twice as I remember, twice in the Boston Globe. The Boston Globe! As soon as I read it, I went upstairs to Mr. Welch. I said, well, Mr. Welch, here's Jack's column in the Boston Globe. Is it all over? Can I go home? <laughs> he said, no, Alan, there's a few loose ends we have to take care of. He's always got an answer, you know. By the way, I told him, I said, you know, I've been suspicious of this guy, McManus, from the very beginning. This column proves it in the Boston Globe. <laughs> this brings us, of course, ladies and gentlemen, to trim tax reform immediately, our latest idea. You know, friends, there are dozens of fine members of Congress in both parties. You're going to hear from perhaps the finest this evening. The trouble is there aren't enough of them. I used to say that the typical congressman had about as much integrity as a $10 prostitute. But... The prostitutes made me cut it out. <laughs> and trim. Trim is the dynamite idea we are using to bring the Congress back to sanity. Many of you, I am sure, are already familiar with trim. For those of you who aren't, we don't want anybody get out of, to get out of here, not even one of you, without knowing what trim is all about. Here is our trim bulletin, a typical copy of our trim bulletin. We are organizing trim committees in every congressional district across the United States. We already are covering about 280 congressional districts. We're almost two-thirds of the way toward our goal, in other words, which is to cover every congressional district in the United States with these trim committees. One of the things the trim committee does is it distributes this quarterly trim bulletin. And for those of you who may never have seen the bulletin, it's a very simple affair, as you can see, and uh, it's just one piece of paper folded in half to make four pages. It's chock full of short, punchy little articles telling the voters in the district what the congressman in Washington are doing with their tax dollars. And then on the back page is one of the best ideas I think we've ever come up with. It may be the single best idea we've ever had. On the back page of each bulletin, we show you how the congressman in a particular district voted during the previous 90 days. This thing comes out every three months, every 90 days, quarterly, however you want to say it. At the top of the page, we show you the congressman's picture. Now, this is just in case you've been to public school and you can't read. <laughs> well, at least... At least we show you what the guy looks like. <laughs> then, next to the congressman's picture, we give you the congressman's name. This is just in case somehow you can read or can find somebody willing to read it to you. And then underneath the congressman's name, we give you the congressman's address. Here's where you, here's where you find this guy. And then underneath uh, these vital statistics, uh, we show you how the congressman voted during the previous 90 days. Did he vote for higher taxes, more inflation, more prices that you have to pay, more government controls over you? Or did he vote for fewer of those things? We lay it out for you very clearly so that at a single glance, the voter in the district can see exactly what the congressman has been doing. And uh, to give you an indication, for those of you who may not be familiar with this particular idea, to give you an indication of how professionally we do this, we send you camera-ready copy so you can get the trim bulletin printed. You see, we're trying to make it as easy for you as we possibly can. All you have to do literally is take the camera-ready copy to the printer and you get it printed up. Some of you may not know, not be sure exactly what to tell the printer. Maybe you've never had anything like this printed. We send you instructions exactly what to tell the printer. 
so as to get what you want. We give you every congressman's voting record. All you, you have to do literally is find your congressman's name in a particular district in, in the part of the country where you vote, and you fill the X's in the right boxes. That's how easy we are making it for you. To give you an indication of the reaction to trim, here is a letter we just got a few weeks ago from South Carolina, from the governor of South Carolina, Governor Jim Edwards. He says, I am happy to join you and the Trim Committee in the continuing fight to decrease taxes through less government. Also from South Carolina, Congressman Floyd Spence, just a note to congratulate you on your efforts to encourage reduced government spending through the Trim program. Well, now, of course, at this point, I know those of you who have never heard of this idea before, or maybe you've heard of it and you're not familiar with it, you, you weren't quite sure what it was, you may now be wondering to yourselves, does the idea work? Is this idea producing the dynamite effects that I'm claiming to you that it does? Let me give you just a few examples of the effects. Last summer during the campaign, the national director of the Trim Committee Network wrote this. About four months ago, a Trim Committee was established in a congressional district of northwestern Maryland. After the committee printed the bulletin, the chairman scheduled a 20-minute appointment to meet with the district congressman in his Washington, D.C. office. After discussing the objectives and goals of the trim program, which incidentally the congressman completely agreed with, this, by the way, reminds me of, of one of the characteristics that we've learned about so many of these birds, which is, whatever you say, the congressman will completely agree with. Try it. You can go in and you can say, congressman, every Saturday night I smack my wife around the house, even if she doesn't need it. The congressman will say, my friend, I completely agree with you. The chairman gave him a few copies of the committee's bulletin. As the congressman glanced at the voting record section on page four, he became very upset. He told the chairman in a few loud words that the trim voting score was an error, as he opposed foreign aid and had voted against it, not for it. During the brief but heated discussion that followed, the congressman was informed by his administrative aide that yes, he had indeed voted as the trim bulletin indicated. For the next two and one half hours, a very persistent congressman kept trying to persuade the chairman not to distribute any of these bulletins in his district. Two days later, the committee chairman informed us why the congressman had been so upset. One of his main re-election campaign issues was that he was strictly against any and all foreign aid. This reminds, uh, reminds me that another of the characteristics we've learned about so many of these turkeys is that they will walk up to you in the district. They will be grinning from ear to ear. That's the way they look. They will vigorously pump your hand. They will listen sympathetically to your problems. Then they will lie in your face. We've decided to stop them, ladies and gentlemen. We're stopping them right now. That's the way we're doing it. Simply by telling the voters in the districts how the guy really voted during the previous 90 days. Now let's go up to big sky country, Montana. One of our high school members saw Mr. Baucus, that's Congressman Max Baucus of Montana, shaking hands at the Democratic booth. So she delivered a trim bulletin to him. The man became red-faced and angry. Notice that uh, Congressman Baucus became red-faced and angry. Uh, this reminds me to tell you that another of the endless benefits you get from our trim bulletin is that the bulletin is to politics as litmus paper is to chemistry. <laughs> you see, you could walk into a room, you open a door, you walk into a room, and in the room you see a dozen guys. You have no way of knowing that one of these guys is a congressman. They all look perfectly normal. <laughs> so what you do is, you whip out your trusty trim bulletin. And then exactly as in the Dracula movies, you've all seen the same, just as in the Dracula movies, you hold it up. The only difference is, instead of holding up the crucifix, you're now holding up the trim bulletin. The guy who becomes red-faced and angry, he's the congressman. We call this the litmus effect. He stomped over to our booth in protest, but stopped short upon observing that the booth was manned by one of my chapter leaders. Six foot three, 230 pounds. <laughs> Former Kansas University lineman. The chapter leader politely asked the congressman, what's wrong? Did we put the X's in the wrong place? We will teach you how to talk like that, friends. Uh, in, in fact, we insist that you talk like that because, once again, we're moderate. We're moderate to the point of fanaticism. 
Whereupon the congressman replied, no, but then pointed a shaking finger to one of the issues and replied, but I wouldn't vote that way on that one again if I had another chance. <laughs> Marietta, Ohio. We took many of our books and reprints to the Wood County Fair last week, passed out hundreds of print bulletins. Our booth was close by the representative of this county, Mullahan, his name is. One of his aides talked with Bob Ellis and was naturally very disturbed about us handing out Mullahan's voting record to the hundreds in attendance. Notice that, isn't that a strange statement? Remember, we're not forming another political party here. We're not telling people vote against the candidate. We're not telling people vote for somebody else. We're not forming a new political party. Our members are Republicans, they're Democrats, they're American Party, American Independent Party, Libertarian. We have enough parties as it is. All we do is we tell the people, here's how the guy is voting and let the people make up their own minds. You'd think the congressman would thank us, but notice that his aide is very disturbed. Apparently, this is secret information you're not supposed to know. On Saturday evening, Mr. Mullahan was to present an American flag which had flown over the White House to the lucky winner. Within an hour prior to the drawing, Mr. Mullahan stood talking to some of his constituents close by our booth. Bob walked over, excused himself, shook hands with him, and handed him one of his bulletins. Mr. Mullahan looked as though he had been slapped. The litmus effect again. Absolutely infallible. That's how they knew he was the real congressman and not some imposter, you see. To make a long story short, the drawing of the flag was done by a lady office employee. They announced over the loudspeaker intercom that they were sorry, but Mr. Mullahan had to leave and could not personally present the flag. Now let's go to Chicago. Chicago. I and two girlfriends passed out about 250 of them. The president of the Panax Publishing Company, four local newspapers, tried to stop me. I told him as a publisher he should support freedom of the press. I was only passing out public information. He insisted I stop. I told him to have me arrested and that I'd love to see headlines. Publisher stops distribution of public information. He left and didn't bother me again. <laughs> People's reaction was favorable. Some came back for extra copies. Russo, he's the congressman, told me the info was wrong. I said it came from the congressional record. He said, it's still wrong. I said, you're a congressman, do something about it. He left. <laughs> now, some of you, some of you uh, may be wondering, what happened on election day itself? Did anything happen on election day itself that will prove the dynamite efficacy of this idea I'm trying so vigorously to persuade you of this afternoon? New Jersey, 13th Congressional District. Congressperson Helen Miner. Ms. Minor, as you may know, is somebody who votes time after time after time to spend you even further down the tubes into bankruptcy and enslavement than you already are. In 1974, Ms. Minor won by 22,000 votes. Last year, the trimmers in the area went to work strictly on an experimental basis to see whether they could accomplish anything at all while they were getting organized. They were just practicing. They weren't really, uh, really distributing the bulletins seriously. They were just getting organized. She won by 6,000 votes. In fact, they concentrated their effort in Sussex County. She lost Sussex County. It appears as if the proverbial handwriting may well be on the wall for Congressperson Minor. Now let's go down to Maryland. Congressperson Gladys Spellman, another who votes time after time to spend you down the tubes. The trimmers went to work in the area. So upset did Congressperson Gladys get that she took to the airwaves to denounce the trimmers. She denounced the trimmers as hatriots. Hatriots. Apparently, she is quite an imaginative person and will have no difficulty, I am sure, finding other work. In fact, Congressperson Minor would be well advised to begin looking now because, uh, according to this report, once again, strictly for practice, the trimmers distributed the trim bulletin in four areas in her district. She lost all four areas. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, I spoke recently in Maryland on this same subject. Until I got to Maryland, this is just a few weeks ago, I wasn't aware of what the trim committee that did this, that drove Gladys so hysterical, I wasn't aware of what it consisted of. I had no idea. When I got to Maryland, Maryland they told me. The trim committee that did all this consisted at the time of one 16-year-old boy. That was the whole trim committee. 
this 16-year-old boy had just come home from one of our summer youth camps, you see? And uh, see, when they come out of these youth camps, they're attack trained, you see? <laughs> it's perfectly true. Charlie Smith, all he has to do is just point at somebody and they just leap and rip out his neck. That's all Charlie... <laughs> Let's stay in Maryland for another quick example. It is interesting to note that this is the first time that Bauman carried Harford County, Maryland. We zeroed in on that county and apparently helped to swing it into Bauman's camp. Now, the Bauman they're talking about there is, of course, Bob Bauman. He's one of the fine congressmen who are in Washington, in both parties. You don't hear enough about them. The prostitute national press won't tell you. They are there. Bob Bauman is one of them. And this proves that the Trim Bulletin works both ways, you see. If there's a rotten congressman in a certain district, why the Trim Bulletin tells the voters why he's rotten. And if there's a fine congressman in a certain district, why the Trim Bulletin tells the voters why he's a fine congressman. As a matter of fact, just a couple of weeks ago, I guess it was, Saturday night uh, in Chicago, we had our annual Chicago Council dinner, of course, and uh, there, if I remember correctly, Congressman Collins, Congressman Jim Collins of Texas, who was one of the speakers, he told us he came across the Trim Bulletin done on somebody else, on another congressman, and he called up Trim headquarters and asked Trim headquarters to do one on him because he thought it would help him. Because, of course, he votes time after time to reduce taxes and to reduce inflation and government controls. Just a few weeks ago, I was in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. The chairman there told me that the congressman called him up. The congressman called the trim committee chairman up and asked him for an audience. He wanted to discuss the situation, you see. The trim committee chairman told him, I'm sorry, I can't squeeze you in. We're, we're uh, publishing the new issue of the trim bulletin right now. Call me back in a couple of weeks. Maybe I can see you. Then there is... Then there is Congressman Helstosky of New Jersey, and uh, Congressman Helstosky, of course, recently was kicked out as a direct result of the distribution of the Trim Bulletin in the strongest areas that Helstosky had. They went to his strongest areas and distributed the Trim Bulletin. Helstosky, by the way, was a guy who, if he was driving by, if he were driving by and on the road and saw you had a flat tire, he'd get out of his car and change your tire. If he heard somebody die, he would go to the funeral. They said if somebody else, I can't remember who it was, he would like, oh, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, if he goes to a funeral, he would like to be the corpse. Uh, apparently, uh, this is the kind of guy Helstosky is. He's no longer with us. The Trim Bulletin did, a, uh, did it. He's no longer going to funerals. At last word, he's now going to jail. Now let's go to Iowa, 1st Congressional District. Congressman Ed Mesvinsky, once again voting time after time to spend you down the tubes into enslavement. Here's the front page, not the front page, but it's, uh, it's a headline, the day after the election from the Quad City Times. Stunned silence at Mesvinsky camp. How come there's a stunned silence at the Mesvinsky camp? Well, there's a stunned silence over there, ladies and gentlemen, you see, because good old Ed Mesvinsky is no longer with us. The voters bounced him. Why? Here it is. This simple little piece of paper with the congressman's voting record on it. That's, that's, that's what did the trick, simply telling the voters in the district how the guy was really voting. That was all the people needed to know. The guy is no longer with us. Now let's go to Michigan. Congressman Richard Vanderveen. Perfect voting record. Our research staff was unable to discover one vote the guy cast to reduce spending, inflation, taxes, prices, and government controls. Perfect voting record. Here's a report from the scene soon after the election. It was worth all the last few days' work when Mr. Vanderveen conceded to Mr. Sawyer on TV. How sweet it is. He looked stunned. He's stunned too. And his first words were, I don't know what happened. I thought I had it won. That's what happened, ladies and gentlemen. That's all it took to do the job. Just that little piece of paper with the guy's voting record on it. Here's another report from the same congressional district. The placing of these bulletins in prominent locations gave the people the information they needed to want to throw the rascal out. This sort of exposure will make them turn or burn. I like that. Turn or burn. That's the message we are sending to Washington now. So if there are any... Congressional assistants here this afternoon, sent here to find out what it was that really happened, and maybe some of them are, it happens all the time. This is the message you take back to your boss Tuesday morning. You will turn, or you will burn. <laughs> you see, ladies and gentlemen, we the people have been very patient, very, very patient indeed, but now we're through. We're through taking orders. From now on... The Constitution will give the orders, and our employees, whose salaries we pay in Washington, they will obey. How's that for a revolutionary new concept of government? 
So there it is, friends, and I think, I think it's fair to say that I've proved this afternoon to the satisfaction of the reasonable mind, even with these few typical examples, that it can be done. It's being done right now, while you are listening to me tell you about it. It's really happening. So to you veteran members who may now be suffering, very understandably, from battle fatigue, I would say this. Friends, now is the time for you to take courage and to get encouraged. The battles we are winning now are clearly the result of the frustrating work you have done and the educational seeds you have planted in so many minds over the years. Those seeds are now beginning to sprout. If we all hang in there just a little bit longer, they will blossom. So friends, we have to hang in there. We have to go the distance for the country, for the greatest nation known to history. If we cash in now, now when the gates of victory are opening before us, it would be the most foolish and pathetic mistake ever made. As MacArthur said in a different way, if we falter now, a thousand ghosts from Nathan Hale to Colin Kelly and beyond would rise from their hallowed graves to accuse us. So now is the time to come out of the trenches. Now is the time to stand and fight. History is replete with victories by the highly motivated outnumbered few. From Xenophon and the 10,000 who broke through a million Persians to the sea, to the 400 immortals at Thermopylae, to the founding of our own incomparable republic, to the men who said nuts to the Nazis at Bastogne. Friends, we still say nuts. The Americans are coming. Now, what about you folks who are here for the first time? For the very first time, you prospects who were brought here by members. The first thing you have to do is you have to do a little reading because if you simply rely on what I've told you here this afternoon, it won't stay with you. Tomorrow morning after church, most of it will be gone. By next week, almost all of it will be gone. You won't be able to pass the word. And if you can't pass the word, you're going to be too, totally useless. You might just as well not have bothered showing up here this afternoon. The only way it will stay with you so that you can pass the word is if you do a little reading. That is why I recommend that you stop at the literature tables. They're just outside. And they're chock full of a raft of material on every single one of the subjects that you are interested in. I urge you as vigorously as I possibly can to stop there, pick up what you need, knock each other down, get up to that literature table, buy everything. And by the, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, please buy it now after my speech. If you wait to think it over and buy it tomorrow, they'll give the credit to this, this guy Scott Stanley here or, or, or this, fellow, uh, this fellow Welch. So please buy the literature now after my speech. Finally, ladies and gentlemen, that's an application for membership in the John Birch Society. The John Birch Society is, of course, the great patriotic education election crusade that created the Great Trim Committee Network, which is already beginning to do so much to save our great country. I urge you as vigorously as I possibly can, those of you who came here for the first time, maybe, or have been thinking it over this afternoon, I urge you as vigorously as I possibly can to join with us in the John Birch Society this afternoon. And the reason I make that melodramatic appeal is that, once again, the simple truth is melodramatic. It's been getting worse and worse, faster and faster, day after day. You're in a race against time. Maybe some of you already have been kicked out. Maybe that's why you showed up here this afternoon. And that's the best solution to the problem I have run into in 13 years of intensive investigation. I'm very flexible on the matter. If you've got a better solution to the problem, tell me what it is. Tell me what it is. I'll join and follow you. If you don't buy our solution, then you are morally bound to give us your solution. I won't listen to any nitpicking, though. This is it. This is the best solution to the problem I have run into in 13 years of intensive investigation. You will find applications for membership in the John Birch Society on the literature table just outside the hall. All you have to give us on the application is your signature, your name and address. That's all the information we require. You do not have to give us your social security number or your sex habits. You take the completed application to one of our local leaders. You will find them strategically positioned around the hall. And you get the application okayed. After you get the application okayed, you bring it up front here to me. I will approve it myself. My approval on one of these applications, along with $2 million, will get you a free ride on the New York subway. <laughs> you take the completed okayed approved application back out to the literature table. You leave it there with your first month's dues. The dues in the John Birch Society are $4 a month for men, $2 a month for women. The reason for that arrangement is that we're male chauvinist pigs. <laughs> Mrs. Quinn notwithstanding. You'll find some male chauvinist pigs outside at the literature table, ready to take your phony Federal Reserve notes. 
please join with us this afternoon. This is the best solution to the problem. You're in a race against time. Thank you very much. <laughs>